there came a day that the group needed to hear it publicly declared that we were now fully in a new calling and we're doing church in a new way and we cannot even see in our rearview mirror what we used to be. We're now going to be responsible for taking thousands of people to heaven that we would have never done doing it that other way. So that's something to feel good about. Let's roll. Dinner Church is a simple and powerful approach to church where food, friendship, and the stories of Jesus are shared around a dinner table. New Dinner Church congregations are starting all over North America. The Dinner Church podcast is creating a space for conversation with Dinner Church pastors, leaders who are already a part of what God is doing through Dinner Church in North America. I'm Heather and I love Dinner Church. Although I serve at a thriving church, I felt the tug to get out of the regular Sunday morning routine to bring the good news of Jesus' kingdom to new places. Dinner Church has been a revolutionary experience for me, my team, and for our congregation. And I want you to get a glimpse of what is happening in this inspiring movement. Join us as we listen in and learn more about how to launch and lead a dinner church. Welcome to the Dinner Church Podcast. My name is Chris Morton, and I produce the Dinner Church Podcast and our other Fresh Expressions podcasts. Today, we're reaching into our archives for a unique and helpful presentation from Dr. Verlin Fosner. But before we get to that, I am joined by my fellow Fresh Expressions team member, John Davis. And we just wanted to share a little bit about the upcoming Dinner Church Summit. Uh, So before we do that, just really quick, John, can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role with the Dinner Church Collective? Sure. Uh, It's a joy to be here with you, Chris, and to have this time to kind of talk about Dinner Church stuff. I I can talk about that stuff all day long if you give me time. But um, yeah, I I coordinate uh, a lot of the Dinner Church uh, events, moments, if you will, uh, for training events, for um, uh, places of you know, where you might bring a dinner church uh, practitioner in for a local church workshop or for other kinds of training events. I also work with the Dinner Church School of Leadership and um, uh, just have a great joy. I really believe, and I'm a dinner church practitioner myself, so I really believe in this model of mission and ministry. Yeah, yeah. And sometime we're going to dedicate uh, an extended time to hearing your story there about starting a okay. dinner church. Uh, but for now, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, what people should expect from the Dinner Church Summit? Sure. I think, you know, this is the first time we've done a specific dinner church gathering like this. And we felt there was a real yeah. need for it because dinner church kind of has its own sort of uh, momentum, if you will, mm-hmm. as, as far as yeah. the movement goes. And yeah. uh, it's and so there was a need to really gather uh, dinner church people, people that maybe are uh, been practitioners, I would call it, even say veteran dinner church folks. Uh, but I would also say it's, uh, we should, we want to gather those folks who are maybe just uh, dipping their toes in the waters of dinner church and just getting started. Sure. And, and it's going to be for anyone in from very beginning to someone who's been doing it for years to gather with other folks who see this as a, as a means of reaching people with the gospel and in a sense, establishing churches mm-hmm. around a table in communities everywhere. Yeah. And so, it's going to be a, a, that's one of the main things is that I sort of see this fellowship forming uh, out of it as I've been working on the dinner church, coordinating all of the logistics yeah. and things like that. It's nice. It's in my backyard uh, I'm in, <laughs> Florida, uh, in the Orlando yeah. area. And so it's, uh, it's in Winter Park. It's going to be a great facility, a great sort of situation for us to gather in. And I think the other thing is that in any kind of uh, work, 
you know, we want to see people encouraged mm-hmm. and inspired as well as challenged uh, to, to think about their mission in creative ways. And so part of it is that so there will be great sessions. There will be inspiring mm-hmm. worship. I think one yeah. of the things that I'm really expe- that I'm kind of expecting of is that we didn't feel we could do a, a dinner church summit and not have dinner church. And oh, yeah. so oh, yeah. on the on the two evenings that we had together, we're actually setting up a dinner church uh, moment uh, for folks. And I, I really think maybe the first mm-hmm. one is going to be focused on the the attendees of the of the summit and really you know kind okay. of a ministry time there. And then we're hoping that we might gather some people from the community. Uh, that wow. might come into the second one as well. Sure. And so it's not just a, uh, you know, it's something that will encourage us and, and it's hopefully minister to us, but also minister to people that might so, sort of find their ways in, uh, in terms of that. That's fantastic. Um, can you tell us uh, anything that will be on the menu yet? Yeah, actually, I was just looking at it today because I had, there will be a vegetarian option. I had that question today. And so uh, there will be <laughs> a vegetarian option, that. but we're doing a, uh, one evening is a uh, penne pasta bar with meatballs and chicken and things like that, as well as some yeah. veggies and things like that. Great, great salad. We're, we have a caterer coming in to do the the, the dinner, so it's going to be first class. Great. It's, it's really going to be a good meal. And we've got folks like uh, Josh Bales, who's going to be our worship leader, who's an incredible mm-hmm. musician, singer, songwriter yeah. in his own right. So he'll be a part of those dinner church gatherings. We're going to do some creative things around art. And uh, and maybe some uh, video and some of those kinds of things that we'll do as a part of it. So it'll be a creative time and engaging time. I use a an acronym EPIC. Uh, so I hope that it will be mm-hmm. experiential, participatory, image rich and communal. And if you want to know more about that, uh, look it up. Yeah. And I can tell you guys just from uh, working with John and Verlin on this, that this really is for anyone, wherever you are in your dinner church um, journey. If you have opened multiple dinner churches, I think you will find an incredible community of people that get it. Um, And if you are just exploring this idea for the first time, uh, I, I can promise you, you're going to leave with a much clearer sense of what Dinner Church is, why it works, and really a vision for what it might look like in your community, as well as just an understanding of what we mean when we say Dinner Church and how that fits in to our uh, kind of understanding of what, what the church has done, what the church is how Jesus worked in this world uh, when he, he was uh, in Israel and uh, how Jesus can work through the church uh, and his people today. So um, I think it's going to be a really rich time. And no matter where you are in that spectrum, that uh, you'll, you'll find a place there. Now, last question for you, John. Uh, one thing we've been doing as we've been discussing this is referring to it as the inaugural gathering of the Dinner Church Collective. And so Maybe you could just for a moment kind of give us uh, a sense of what your hopes and dreams and prayers are for what the Dinner Church Collective will become. I sure will. I mean, I think part of it is it's, it is building this community. And, it, and in some ways, the community already exists, but it's finding a, a place to where people can actually plug in and connect. Yeah. And where yeah. they can get resources, where they can have conversation, where they can um, engage with people and, and in a sense uh, build their uh, uh, dinner church mission, uh, and and so when I think about that, I think about that that in so many ways, when you you know, uh, in any ministry, you need 
camaraderie. You need people that are going to come alongside yeah. and, and be a part and encourage you, inspire you, as I said before. You know, that's one of the things I'll go back to the summit right quick. One of the things that's happening there is that we're doing something a little different as we're calling them meetups uh, we, as a part of the schedule. Mm, and so sure. rather than just workshops and more teaching and, a, you know, kind of taking notes and doing that, we're, we're really yeah. trying to design sessions where there's conversation. And that's sort of a picture of what the collective is in terms of being a, a place where people can gather, they can gain insight, they can gain practical logistical things about how to, how to plan for a dinner, how to, how to budget for a dinner, how, do, those kinds of things, which, you know, some those questions come up a lot. But also, it's so that they can look across the table, have prayer with people who share this same vision yeah. and mission and, yeah. and become a part of something. You know, I, I hate to say it. It comes to mind as I'm talking. It's almost it's like the good things about a denomination, the good things about being organized <laughs> and, and, sure. and, and that kind of yeah. thing is really that's what we're trying to glean for the people that are dinner church practitioners is that's this great. sense of connecting connectedness and community uh, and and conversation with one another about how to do this better and better and better. That's great. Uh, well, if you haven't yet, head over right now to dinnerchurch.com forward slash summit to register. You can register yourself or your entire team for this unique and important gathering. Uh, now, uh, thank you so much for your time, John. Anything else you want to add? I think we hit a lot, but anything else you want to add? Yeah, well, I just I hope to see you in Orlando because it's going to be, uh, I think, an important time. Yeah. And I think the first of others to come. Uh, so you want to be there for this first inaugural thing. There's only You only get one time to do it first, right? And, <laughs> and so yeah. we're, we're working hard to make it a really great, solid event with high quality, uh, you know, input, high, high quality presentation, as well as uh, being uh, the ecclesia, being the church, being the, the called out ones gathered together yeah. uh, in faith and and uh, to see his kingdom come and his will being done. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, today we have a special treat for you. Uh, this presentation you're going to get to hear uh, is Verlin Fosner's personal story of how his 100-year-old traditional congregation reinvented itself as a movement of over a dozen dinner churches. Now, uh, if you've encountered Verlin and his work, you've probably heard parts of this uh, presentation before, these ideas before. Uh, but in this, he really kind of gets into the nitty gritty uh, of what you deal with as you try to help a declining congregation make major shifts. So uh, this isn't um, necessarily about dinner church, but just really about how we believe that uh, God can work through established congregations, that God is not finished with those uh, congregations. It feels like maybe the energy uh, is in their past. And that's Verlin's own story. And he's going to share just about some of the tricky uh, and even painful, but fun and exciting steps that they took along the way uh, to transition from a single traditional church to uh, about a dozen dinner church congregations. And if you're in a struggling or declining church, or you're overwhelmed by the process of change, I really think that this podcast episode is going to help you. So uh, without uh, further ado, I just want to say thank you to John for joining me here and hope you guys enjoy this presentation from Dr. Verlin Fosner.
Uh, I wanted to really uh, zero in on that topic of from declining back to thriving specifically. I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on our particular dinner church, which is the way we got our footing uh, restored to us here in the city. But I wanted to just actually talk through the mile markers that we discovered along the way. And maybe it's something that you will find helpful. I, I pray that it is. There's actually eight mile markers that, um, that were big ones. That I, uh, I'm, and each one of these is probably an hour and a half long to, be, to fully understand them. I'm only going to be hitting the high points, um, and maybe some of the questions can ferret out a little bit more of the detail down below as we get to the last 10 minutes of today. But, um, the first mile marker, uh, and I don't want to run the risk of sounding too much like John Cotter, Jim Collins, sort of the consummate voices. Uh, of transformational metrics or transformational uh, thinking, but uh, they definitely helped us uh, in our particular story. And like I had said earlier, uh, we found ourselves in pretty radical decline, 14% per year, uh, which interestingly is uh, about the rate of attrition uh, in the average large city. The closer you get to an urban center, the closer you get to the 15% attrition rate, which means you have to grow by 15% every year just to maintain exactly the same attendance rate as what you had the year before. A lot of leaders aren't thinking about that, and that's something they need to factor in. It's not just that they're perhaps failing. There is a natural sociological shift in big cities that happens at a very radical rate. And so that 14% simply let me know and let our leadership team know that we didn't have the ability to replace anyone who had the audacity to die or move. And uh, so we, they, they literally would, the natural rates of attrition would happen and we didn't have the ability to get anyone from our community to come and decide to go to heaven with us the way we were presently uh, going to heaven. And so that really demonstrated a significant issue. Um, and it seemed to happen really fast too. It was like a light switch. Just one day we felt like we had resonance with our community and the next it was gone, never to return. And uh, there wasn't something that had happened. There wasn't a rumor. There was, it was just, just suddenly something changed. And we went into decline for the first time in our 85-year history at that point. We're 93 years old now. Um, but the first mile marker that we really came to, and what I would say was the first turning point back to a more positive path for us, was when we faced our failure honestly and publicly, uh, that there's kind of a, there was a sense inside of us that we needed to sort of downplay the uh, failure that we were experiencing because we still had an auditorium full of people. It's just that we didn't have two auditoriums full like we used to have. And, um, but, uh, so there was sort of that sense that we need to like maintain that confidence that we're doing well. And if we, if we be honest about this, we're just going to lose a bunch more rats off the sinking ship, all that kind of thing. That actually turned out not to be true. Um, when we actually announced that at our present shrink rate, 
we were literally going to be unable to keep the doors open past November of 2011. That created a very sober uh, time of evaluation for our people. And we didn't have people run for the doors. Uh, in fact, what we saw was a very circumspect desire as our group turned around and said, all right, well, let's fix this because I love this church. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a pretty remarkable thing. Um, I felt previous that I had a hard time getting the church focused on why we needed to make some changes. Uh, but after that, uh, I had their rapt attention. And, uh, and our leaders very much had a significant sense of motivation too, to sit down and honestly understand why we're in decline and what we should do about it. So that, uh, that honest, or I, I think uh, Jim Collins refers to this as managing the urgent or even creating the urgent, that actually was very profound. Uh, our group got very serious on that day, the day we made that announcement. I still remember the looks on their faces when I made that announcement on a Sunday morning at a Sunday morning gathering. And uh, what happened following was 180 degrees different of what had been happening previous. So um, I'm sure that there is uh, some wisdom in this, that if, if someone just throws out that kind of a bomb, they probably want to have the commitment to see it through to a new day. Um, I wouldn't certainly throw stuff out like that if I hadn't measured myself and our leaders commitment that we were going to, we were going to figure this out. Us and Jesus, were going to figure this out and, uh, he's going to help us and we're going to pay close attention. So that commitment was there. So I, I could comfortably go ahead and, and, uh, let the honesty of our failure be, become a public talking point. Um, the second thing uh, that the second mile marker that I think really began to help uh, us was when I, I called all of our leaders and their spouses to give one night a week specifically for the purpose of, of, of evaluating a new day, uh, of really redefining our definition of Christianity, because obviously the one we had... <laughs> wasn't potent enough to work function. And then our definition of church, the way we were doing church certainly wasn't compelling our neighbors to go to heaven with us. And so they, uh, there was some very deep uh, introductions right up front. We we're going to go as deep as we have to go to fix whatever is eating us up. Whatever cancer is destroying us from within, we're going to figure it out. Um, when I made that announcement and when I invited our leaders, which there was 80 or so in that composite leadership team uh, to give every Tuesday night. I, I honestly thought it was going to be more strategic. I didn't realize it was going to be so, so incredibly soulish. Um, as it turned out, the problem was actually deep inside of us. It wasn't that we had the wrong strategy. It's that our soul was wired in some ways that it needed better alignment with, with our master. And uh, so I, I invited them in for some, some what I thought was strategy, and it really turned out to be soul surgery. Um, we had at one point 250 years of pastoral experience on our staff. And uh, so we had a lot of brain power and a lot of experience. That's why I thought, let's get together in a room. Let's start praying. Let's start thinking. We're going to come up with a new day here. 
but actually we, we needed a lot deeper of a soul surgery first. So, but anyway, in that leaders weekly transformational, uh, gathering, that was where the white hot surgery actually took place. Our communication with the rest of the congregation after the fact, uh, to just keep them up to speed. And each week I, um, and this is another mile marker that I quickly identified. Um, uh, and that was, I had a little coaching conversation before every sermon every Sunday. I'd take five minutes, I'd drag up a stool and sit down on it, and I would just bring everybody up to speed with the conversation that had happened in the leaders meeting that previous Tuesday night, and what we're learning and what we're thinking and how we're failing. Um, and uh, so that uh, that little coaching, which by the way, has continued clear to this day, even though we're long into a new chapter, we really don't need it anymore. But everyone just likes an update of our growth steps. Uh, back then, it was an update of why we think we might not die as fast steps. <laughs> so, uh, but that coaching moment, that five minute mission talk from the mission leader, so to speak, turned out to be very significant for our people. And we felt like what was happening in the room of 80 was happening with everyone else out in the auditorium. So that was, uh, that was a significant thing. Um, anyway, uh, while we were in those leaders meetings, though, that's what brings me to the next mile marker which was, uh, well, the thought really began to hit us. If, if Jesus is the head of the church, would he really have not left some information behind for leaders like us that are struggling and declining like we now are? I mean, would he really found the church and not give us the tools to fix things when they go awry and how to stay on track. And because we're definitely awry, we've ended up on a path that we don't know how to go forward on it. And um, so with that little thought, we begin to look a little more seriously at the actual words of our Lord. I think all of us had instinctively considered that the epistles and especially the pastoral epistles and Paul's writing was probably where leaders would find the most uh, philosophical leadership for ministry. And, uh, but we just started to ask, what, what would Jesus actually say? I mean, if he were to join this room of 80, what would he actually start saying to us? And that was where we watched uh, several parables literally blow up from within us. And those parables, I dare say, they changed us. Uh, the first parable that really started to change us uh, was actually the three set, the, the, lost, the, lost, the lost coin, uh, the lost son, the lost sheep. And, uh, you know, the urgency of that widow looking for that coin because she probably needed it for dinner that night. Um, and uh, the, um, the, the priority of the lost sheep over those that were found and how the shepherd, I, I, you know, unapologetically spent his time going after that lost one while the other ones were safe in, in community, so to speak. Um, and then, of course, the, the lost son, where the father's life was forever changed. I mean, everyone else might be partying in the house, but he's standing on the front porch waiting for his, his youngest to come back. And how the, all of those really pulled together for us the understanding that the God family was in the rescue business. We weren't, but the God family was. Uh, they were very affected by this lostness 
And the fact that this was the only set of parables that Jesus did as a rapid fire sequence, left, right, left, right kind of a thing, uh, really hit us with the priority of this. Um, Christianity uh, is the greatest rescue project the world has ever seen. And yet our church was not in the rescue project. We were not advancing it. We were in the go-to-church business. Uh, we were in the Bible business. We were in the teaching business. We were in the Christian community business. We were in the youth programs and children's programs and music programs. We were in the Christian programming business. Some might say we were in big business, uh, but uh, though we weren't a huge church comparative to some of the mega churches, but um, but we weren't in the rescue business, and that really changed us. The night that we took a hold of hands around that room, all of us as leaders, and we said, Lord, we we confess that we've not been in the same business you're in. And we want that to change tonight. Show us how to get back into the rescue business and we will go. And that created a whole new set of glasses on our eyes. These Reformation era glasses that we had been wearing uh, came off and a new set came on that that uh, the lost were going to start to get our priority and we were going to start to live for those that uh, did not know the address of the Savior, so to speak, yet. And um, so that, uh, that really changed us. The next uh, parable that really started to affect us a few weeks later was the parable of the unfruitful tree in the garden. And of course, uh, Jesus likened himself to the gardener, but came, you know, would come and dig around the roots and prune the tree so that it would start to produce fruit and uh, came back the next year. And it still wasn't producing fruit. next season, still wasn't producing fruit, dug around the roots again and, and pruned it again. And this time gave kind of an interesting warning that if I come back the next time and, uh, and you're not producing fruit, then I'm going to remove you from the garden. And it, it really hit us as we started to take that parable apart and dare to, in some kind of way, let the Lord interpret what the fruit means, not us based on our church history. Um, and then uh, uh, all the other components of that story, we, uh, we, we realized, you know, that fruitful thing, if, if you're looking through the rescue lens, it means you are fruitful at rescuing the lost. And we had not been fruitful at rescuing the lost. Uh, and like I said, we'd gathered the already saved quite nicely. Nice, nice campus, nice church gatherings and whatever. Not rescuing the lost, though. And um, so that, uh, that demonstrated, wow, we are the unfruitful tree. And Jesus is actually letting us die. Because we're unfruitful. We, that was really a hard-hitting acknowledgement that Jesus was okay to let us die because we were not fruitful in the area that the God family wakes up every morning kind of concerned about, the, the lost, the rescue of the lost. And um, so we, we said, wow, that's, that, that's quite interesting. And, I, and we didn't realize we didn't have a theology of church closure, but we had one after this. We understood church closure after this. 
And I'm quite sure that that is an across-the-board reality. Um, Of the 80 churches that closed around the country this past week, I'm quite sure that not a one of them has had any meaningful uh, rescues of the lost happening in their gatherings or on their watch for quite a while. And a good theology of church closure helped us understand what the bottom line was. And uh, we either get good at rescuing the lost, even in highly secular Seattle, uh, of which the bar is a lot higher than other places. But, hey, so what? This is where we are. Uh, Either we get good at rescuing the lost or Jesus himself is fine just to let us die out and let another one come and hopefully do better. And uh, so that was a real interesting wake-up call. We now had a theology of church closure. We were now ready to um, to get very serious in what, what we knew we had to do. We were in the rescue business. We'd already committed to learn that. But now we had to get good at literally rescuing the lost and getting them to the Savior somehow, some way, though we did not know how. The next parable that really affected us was the one of the great banquet. And the king, whose son was getting married, invited all of the realm, especially the uppity-ups of the realm, the nobles, the noble class, uh, to come and honor his son's wedding. And they had the big, the big banquet hall filled. But they all refused to come because they were mad at him for X, Y, and Z, some policy that he had instituted, and they didn't like it. So the hall was basically going to be empty. The RSVPs simply were not coming in. And so... Uh, it was at that time that in Jesus' story, he commissioned his, um, the, the king commissioned his servants to drop down and invite the commoners. If the noble class is not going to come, go get the commoners. So they went after the commoners in the realm, the ones that were not used to be invited to uh, a king's banquet. Uh, but they came, and afterwards there was still some room. And so the king said, all right, we'll drop down on the socioeconomic ladder again and go and get the, um, the basically what we would know as the homeless, or those that, that sleep along the hedgerows. And finally, the house was full. And that was the last statement, was that keep doing this until the house is full. And we, we started to think about such things as the ministry capacity that we had, and that we definitely had a lot of room in it. We had room in our buildings. We had room in our in our ministries, we had room in our reach. Um, and if Jesus were sitting in the room, would he honestly look at us with this message and say, all right, well, if the middle and the upper class of which your church is located and, and has been very effective with that group, if they are not coming here anymore, drop down to the commoners and even drop down to those that might be considered of the lower third, those that have uh, quite interesting needs. And uh, so we, we looked at each other, uh, and that was we had to kind of face a, a willingness for an identity shift. We had never intended to become elitists, uh, but somehow we down deep knew we were. We knew something wasn't quite right if we were even having to stop and pause on this point, because everyone that came to our Sunday morning gatherings, I mean, they looked good, and they drove nice vehicles, and, to, and together... We were us, and we were all proud of us. And now we're talking about a people that um, maybe we wouldn't wouldn't feel the same about. And so it was really an interesting identity reshift. And we kind of felt that if we're going to actually be in the rescue business, 
we might want to actually go for those who are in need of rescue more than the middle and upper class Americans. We, we evaluated that verse where Jesus said, I've, you know, I've, I've come to save and those especially who know that they need a physician. Well, most of the middle and upper class around us, they didn't know, they didn't believe that they needed divine help in their life. They might be interested in talking a theological point here and there, but the ones that knew they needed help, that was the lower third of our Seattle neighbors. They already knew it. There was no convincing them. So if we were going to begin to move forward in the way that our master would, then we would go after those that already know that they need a physician. That was a new way of thinking for us. We had never done that before. But that actually led us to to begin to reach, identify, and think about reaching for the isolated populations and the lower third. Um, There was another parable that came that was pretty profound for us, um, and that was the parable of the wineskins. In this parable, the new wine gets poured in, but of course, it expands at a different rate than what the wineskin is capable, and so the wineskin breaks, the leathery wineskin breaks, and the new wine is spilled. And we, we really begin to realize that all of the downloads from heaven, if you will, that had ever been given to us, we had always jammed it right back into the same sociological assumption. Oh, we're going to have a Sunday morning gathering. We're going to have programs. We're going to have staff. We're ran by a board. That, that whole Reformation template way of doing church that we've done for 500 years, of which we were deeply dialed in disciples of that singular template, that actually comprised a, a human or a sociological mannerism, if you will. And so the new the new plan that the Lord would give us would need a new sociological construct. The, the uh, Reformation-oriented sociological assumption, some of that might not be present if we're actually going to continue to say yes to the Lord. We said yes, that we'll get back in the rescue business, and we said yes, we'll, we'll, we'll understand what, uh, what failure actually begins with the church closure theology, and, and we'll, we'll grab a hold of of beginning to reach for people that are different than the middle and upper class, those that already know they need a savior. But if we're going to do all of that, then it was time for us to really take an honest look at our way of doing church, our sociology, uh, if you will, our sociological approach. Um, missiology is, is the equal dosings of theology and sociology. And most pastors, of which we were in this category, we were a lot better at the theology piece, but we just assumed the sociology piece. The one that was invented 500 years ago, we just assumed that's always going to be here. And so we weren't very healthy missiologists, and we started to really own that. It was at that time that that through some series of researches, and I was doing some grad work during that time, and was out with people that really were doing some front-edge Uh, research on a lot of this, and that was really fortunate for me. But um, we came to the conclusion that the church doesn't have a theological problem nearly as much as it has a sociological problem, the church in America. Our continued assumption of the of the human uh, wine bottle, the wine skin, that sociological construct 
is ruining one good download from heaven after another because we stick it in there. It doesn't hold it. People fracture, boards react, pastors get frustrated and leave. People get irritated because they really liked programs A, B, and C, and, and boom, the thing busts and the new idea crashes on the floor, and back to the drawing board we go. I mean, I had been through num- numbers of those kinds of things, never considered that the problem was that Reformation template, that, that sociological construct, that way of doing church. I had always assumed that was just like eternal. And when we started to realize that model is not actually found in the Bible anywhere, (laughs) that kind of uh, shook us a little bit. It gave us permission to maybe consider a different way of doing church, a different sociological construct, but it kind of shook us too, because we kind of thought this whole thing was all God. You know, the theology piece and the sociology piece was all, was all just God. It was just God. That's all. And, and uh, actually separate that out and say, no, actually, the beautiful interventions from the Lord that are pouring our way, we're going to have to change the way we do church to house it. Uh, if we're going to start to reach out from this group and get back into the rescue business. And so that was really interesting for us. Uh, it was at that point that we honestly stopped and said, we're going to have to find a completely new way of doing church if we are going to keep going down this road. We can't just assume that this beautiful, cherished way of doing church that we've all loved for decades is actually good for going forward. Not if we're in the rescue business. What's good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander. A good way of doing church for the Judeo is not exactly a good way of doing church for the secular of which in my city, that's 90% of the population. Only 5%, only 5% of Seattle attends church, and another 5% used to. A 90, full 90% are of a worldview persuasion that has never caused them to give any time, place, and space to any level of church attendance. And so they are statistical seculars, or I might call them sociological seculars. Uh, getting away from the whole, what they honestly believe about God and whatnot. Let's just, what has moved them enough to do something with their bodies about any level of, of Christian uh, community engagement. So that, uh, that really began to lead us to the, to the knowledge that when we come out of the woods on this transformational process, we might not look like what we look like now. I mean, like maybe not hardly at all. And uh, so that was a very interesting, maybe, uh, we kind of left that meeting and a few following a little quiet because suddenly the price was starting to get a little expensive. Um, the last um, uh, parable that really reshaped our soul, I think it would, it would be the fifth defining thing that occurred that was of a soul surgery nature, was the parable about the farmer that sowed the seed. The next morning he got up and there was a bunch of weeds that were growing. Uh, or the next couple of days, his his uh, servants all assumed they were going to be jumping into the weeding mode, and he said, "No, no, no! You'll you'll uproot the good stuff. You just keep nurturing the seed, and people above your pay grade, and later down the road, they'll deal with the weeds. But you, you just keep nurturing the seed." And as we pondered that, we realized that was Jesus's way of talking to us about how to begin to handle people that start off in such ruined lifestyles and ideas and philosophies. And, you know, the the sanitized church pretty much 
almost everyone that walks in kind of is similar already. Uh, but yet there's a huge portion of, of our populations that they're not similar. They don't share a basic life uh, pattern that has been shaped by a middle and upper class uh, life and basically a, some kind of a family background and a little talk at church and a praying grandma and the kind of thing that makes the people that typically walk into a church and have walked into all of our churches. We're not talking about going after a group of people that has none of that. And their lives start off just so blown to pieces. And how can the average sanitized Christian sit down at a table with someone who is uh, 180 degrees opposite of that and begin to embrace them as a friend? And, and we just really begin to think about, about that. When do we obey Jesus by not pulling the weeds in someone's life? I mean, we've almost adopted this idea that we're not a good Christian if we're not truthfully uh, dividing Scripture and pointing it out with people. And, you know, we, we, a form of weed planting when we come across people is kind of what we've done in the church. Uh, but now we're talking with people that they're not ready to think that deeply and have such a, a large commitment to stay there while someone's daring to pluck things out of their life. And I think Jesus wrote this parable just for a moment, just like this. If we're going to go and start to rescue people that are lost in the weeds that far, and their ideas and philosophies are that uh, secularized and anti-God and whatever else, we probably need to learn to obey the Lord by not pulling the weeds, but being really good at just nurturing the seed. Um, this is harder for people of the Reformed tradition uh, because their penal substitution theology uh, makes that very challenging. The salvation can't happen until the penal phase has happened. And, and so that this is really a, hard, a harder one for them to obey. I'm from an Armenian uh, tribe. And on top of that, I'm an unapologetic Armenian. So it's a little easier for me. Uh, we had to kind of get good at our Armenianism, um, but, uh, but realize that, that Jesus is really good at his job. And we can trust that. And if we're there and we're continuing to bring Jesus to the table and we're continuing to nurture the seed by continuing to implant the gospel into their life, he'll deal with the weeds in unseen ways. And, and, uh, but in this day of salvation, this is the time where we just continue nurturing the seed. So we gave ourselves permission to not be feeling obligated to pull people's weeds out of people's lives all the time. And it's okay to let them sit there and whatever philosophy or ideas that they have and we just be with them and just talk about Jesus though just keep talking about Jesus and so that the seed the the actual gospel is implanted and continually nurtured and watered and um awful lot of evidence that this is this is the tack that Paul took Peter in dealing with the Jews and the gospel with the Jews was able to have that 700 year history with the law and was able to hit a lot more of a black and white description of the gospel. When, when Paul got the gospel ready for the Gentiles, though, people that were further out, he did an awful lot of ignoring stuff while he was working with them and just a lot more grace, grace to grace and faith to faith and strength to strength and just come start walking with Jesus. And as he starts leading, you just keep saying yes was basically a very, uh, a very um, you know, hamstrung way of referring to Pauline theology there a bit. Um, anyhow, those parables 
really started to change us. We couldn't like start to think about our strategies and going out until inside we had had this other stuff fixed. And we really were a people that were focused back on the rescue business. And the major hurdles that would keep us from being good at the rescue business had been knocked over for us. The Lord did that for us in an environment of prayer and honesty and confession. Uh, and it was, a, it was an incredibly meaningful time. Um, the, now moving a little bit more back to the practical, we come to the next mile marker, the seventh mile marker that we begin to see after this whole soul surgery phase. Um, and that is we just gave permission for the group to start failing forward. Um, we were not going to be the, the people of faith and power that uh, demonstrated our connection with God because uh, we were right all the time. We truthfully didn't know where we were going to come out of the woods or what woods we were in necessarily. We knew we were in the rescue business and we knew we were going to start with those that already knew they needed a savior, but uh, needed a, a physician. But beyond all that, we had no practical parts of this. We saw the new wine starting to download but we didn't know what kind of a sociological construct we were ever going to put it in. So we were, um, um, we were filled with fog at that point in time. So we were going to have to fail forward. We're going to try some stuff and learn from it. And so uh, our church was incredibly bold at this phase. When I got up and announced that we were going into a research and development phase as a church, and it was going to be led forward by failure. So let's just make up our mind right now to laugh about it rather than point fingers. And they did. And it was really common um, uh, to have people out in the halls after a Sunday gathering say, so Verlin, how did you blow up the kingdom of God this week? And, uh, and that was kind of shocking. Uh, we'd laugh, I'd tell them, we'd just honest with our failures. We were failing forward. We failed at numerous things before we ever started to really get serious about this ancient dinner church, this agape feast form of church. Um, but we just gave permission to fail forward. That is, I think, a really important mile marker for every group that's in transformation, trying to work their way out of decline and back to thriving. Uh, I think that's that's got to be a necessary piece. Um, another mile marker uh, that I would point out, look for the Macedonian calls because they will come. Uh, the Macedonian call where Paul logically and, and strategically thought that it would be best for the gospel to go to Asia because of a higher population. And, but the spirit restrained him. And instead he had a dream about this little man from Macedonia waving him to come to them. And when he got there, it turned out to be a Turkish woman instead of a man, but that's a whole different point. Um, there was a Macedonian call that directed him uh, with a louder voice than strategy would suggest. And in all of the neighborhoods that we have entered in Seattle, of which we're now in eight of them every week, we have literally had a Macedonian-type invite into every one of them. We, we laid out strategies. Well, if we start in the city here and we'd taken on the citywide mindset where this neighborhood and that neighborhood and this neighborhood, and you know, we, we tried to think a little bit strategically, but we just became overwhelmed by these Macedonian moments that bid us and waved us one spiritual thing uh, after another into this particular neighborhood now, and then soon into that one, and then into that one. And so look for the Macedonian calls. They are happening again. They probably always were happening, but 
the Reformation template kind of masked some things. It came with such a uh, a thick set of, 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 of values that it was almost, but look for that Macedonian call again. It's going to, it's going to call you right back into a particular under gospel people that down deep, they already know they need help. And, um, and that Macedonian moment is going to help you know where that actually is. So uh, keep your heart open. I, I would love to tell the story. I don't have the time, but the first Macedonian call that happened, I didn't recognize it. I was so weirded out by what was happening. Every time I drove through this one particular neighborhood, I was just, it's like the whole world stopped, went into slow-mo, rose-colored glasses came over my eyes. And now I know I was just the Holy Spirit trying to say, come here, come here. This is the place. It was 50 blocks south of our church campus. And and that's actually where we opened our first dinner church. But look for that Macedonian call. I am quite sure that if we're even pausing on that just a little, we're going to start to hear, a, we're going to start to feel a particular burning for one neighborhood that's different than the rest. It's more, it's greater. And uh, so anyway, the Macedonian call is important. Um, the next mile marker is be bold. The future belongs to the bold, not the safe. Christianity at its core is a a sacrifice-based initiative. It's not a comfort-based initiative. I realize in the last 500 years, the church that can make things most comfortable for people tends to grow larger. That's kind of one of the backbones of the church growth movement. Um, But it's just not the gospel. The gospel is a sacrifice-oriented thing. Be bold in the sacrifice that's being asked for. Our church people, um, they turned out to be so bold, I, I just, I, I shook my head. I wrote an article about them and published that they're the boldest church in America because everything we kept throwing at them, hey, let's, let's go do church this way now. Hey, let's leave our nice church campus, even though it's completely remodeled and beautiful, because we can take more people to heaven if we go have church in a community center. And hey, let, you know, like every different thing that we threw, they just kept saying, more people are going to get to heaven? Let's do it. And they were willing to set aside their comforts, even padded chairs and a very wonderful sacred space worship environment to instead go to a noisy place where basketball is happening across the hall and plastic chairs are the norm. And uh, But they were bold. They were just bold. Be bold. That is really key. I don't think um, I, the best of wine that would be downloaded from heaven is not going to be put into new constructs that will actually hold it without human boldness. And there just came a time where we had to face the fact that we needed to have a good Christian mean streak about us. We were going to be bold about this thing. We are not going to be washed out of this city. And uh, that that boldness really mattered. Um, but in boldness in embracing new people that are not like you. Boldness in doing church in a new way that is not the way that everyone is really comfortable with. And, and even me as a pastor, I'd spend a lot of time and money preparing myself as a good presenter of the gospel and our music, our worship, everything was worked hard at. We'd put a lot of money and time into it. And now we're considering a way of doing church that didn't need much of that. Uh, that, that, that required boldness on our part. And uh, at least it wouldn't need it in the, with the level of excellence that we were capable of anymore. Not the same. 
And uh, so that was that was uh, that was actually harder than I would have expected. I'm kind of embarrassed how hard that was because it was so personal. But uh, but it was. Uh, but be bold. Um, the uh, the seventh mile marker that I would I would lay in front of you today is um, give permission for your people to grieve the loss of the old cherished way of doing church. Our, our church had had a very wonderful, prayerful environment. We'd been shaped in the likeness of Christ for decades as the organ is playing, as the keyboards are playing, as there is these wonderful post-preaching, meditating moments, and sometimes even around an altar, and just this sweetness, wonderful surging of the sense of Christ's presence literally walking up and down the aisles of our, of our gatherings. And it was cherished. We loved it. Sometimes I really miss it now because we're not doing much of that quite like quite that way. But boy, that was sure meaningful to all of us. And we're going to now, because of the rescue business, we're going to begin to do church in a way that doesn't assume that much of that. But it's the way that will get those people to run to the Savior. It's a way of doing church that they can resonate with. They can feel Jesus that, with the church that way, the way we could feel church that old cherished way. I mean, we had to kind of like own that understanding. and uh, But that meant loss for us. And so I, I remember the Sunday that I stood up and I said, hey, you know what, my wife and I, we haven't told you much about this, but we've really been grieving what is going to be lost here as we keep moving forward. Because we love this, this environment that we have on Sundays. And we really do. We like creating it. We like being a part of it. We like experiencing it. Um, I'm a crier, and that's a, that's about the time of the week where I feel the most, where I just that warmth of the presence of the Lord. And and um, so uh, uh, I give. If we're grieving over it, you guys are going to grieve over it, and you're gonna you're gonna hate the stuff we're talking about. And we don't blame you. Um, and uh, and yet, getting people to heaven, populating heaven with people that are presently not going or know how to get there is maybe a little bit higher of a goal than, than our cherished vision of church. And so we gave permission to our group, and I, I'm really glad we did that. Our group responded by going ahead and grieving it. They were glad to hear we had. They thought maybe they were being lousy Christians because they were feeling so sick to their stomach about what they were going to be giving up. And to find out we were feeling the same way and we're leading the charge, it was really emotionally healthy, I think, for us as a group. And actually, I think my wife and I grieved longer and harder than the group did. Their knowledge that we were grieving kind of put them at ease, and they seemed to go through it faster. I, I'm not sure how I actually feel about that, to be honest with you. But, um, but they were like ready to go within a matter of months. All right, let's do this. You're right. It's a price that needs to be paid, so let's pay it. Let's do it. Part of their boldness again. But so um, grieving the loss of the old cherished way is something that I think every group. Everything new means you're saying no to something old, but that has a level of emotion attached to it and a level of spirituality attached to it. So grief is going to have to happen. God's still in it, but grief needs to happen. And if you don't give the permission for them to to grieve that loss, they're going to feel that sick feeling and think that that it's God's way of saying, no, you're going wrong. Your leaders are doing the wrong thing. And And it was really quite a soul-deepening thing in us to realize that we could be totally following the Lord and yet needing to grieve the loss of a, of, of a way that we had walked and enjoyed him in the past. 
and um, and and both were right. And uh, the the truthfulness about grief allowed us to actually do that, and our people did it wonderfully. Um, I think the last thing I'll leave you with is um, there came a day that the group needed to hear it publicly declared that we were now fully in a new calling and we're doing church in a new way. And we cannot even see in our rear view mirror, what we used to be. This is now us. There's not the hope that we're going back to that one day, this declaration, this is our new calling. The Lord has given it to us. We've said, yes, it has a different sociological construct, but it is now us. And may the Lord lead us on. And the day I made that declaration, it was like if there was any residue in the room that needed to be settled, it got settled on that day. And, uh, and everyone just said, all right, this is us. We're now going to be responsible for taking thousands of people to heaven that we would have never done doing it that other way. So that's something to feel good about. Let's roll. Thanks for listening today. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your dinner church story. You can connect with us over at dinnerchurch.com. It's also where you can find a lot of great resources about how to start or sustain your dinner church journey. Dinner Church Podcast is brought to you by the Dinner Church Collective and Fresh Expressions. The Dinner Church Collective is a nationwide community of everyday missionaries spreading the word about this simple, effective, and historical approach to starting new churches. We sure hope you'll join us for the Dinner Church Summit November 9th through the 11th, 2023 in Orlando, Florida. This will be the inaugural gathering of the Dinner Church Collective, and it's your opportunity to be a part of developing a family of pioneers who are passionate about recapturing this powerful expression of God's kingdom. You will meet new colleagues who become friends, all while eating well, worshiping heartily, and learning tangible practices for building a dinner church movement. Learn more at dinnerchurch.com summit. This season of the Dinner Church Podcast is hosted by Heather Evans and J.D. Larson. It's edited by Joel Limbowen and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Dr. Verlin Fosner is the director of Dinner Church Collective, and Dr. Chris Backert is the North American director of Fresh Expressions. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and even share this episode on social media. May God bless you as you serve Jesus' kingdom.